This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Exodus 20. I was introduced to the Puritans when I was 22 years old through the writings of J.I. Packer. His book, Knowing God, is where I met so many pastors and authors who had become such a shaping influence in my life. Packer compared the spiritual life of England's Puritans to the giant redwood trees of California, saying they had this mature holiness that seemed to stretch much higher than the majority of Christians that he'd known. The Puritans were wonderful examples of what it looks like when it comes to God-centered living and the pursuit of holiness and the call to enjoy communion with Christ. However, Puritans were not great when it came to naming children. I found a book this week published in 1880 entitled Curiosities of Puritan Nomenclature. You've never read this book. And let me explain the last word. Nomenclature is the act of naming something or someone. So the author, Charles Bardsley, records some pretty interesting accounts of what Puritans called their children. A baptism from February the 6th, 1586, reports a girl named Be Thankful Tyreston was baptized. We can be thankful for that. You're welcome, you're welcome. That was pretty funny. But can you imagine being her uh, brother and arguing over a toy because be thankful won't share with you? (laughs) Another baptism record from 1586 was for a boy called Repent Durant. I just imagine his mother around dinner time standing on the front porch calling, Repent! Repent! What would the neighbors think? Hopefully they would. However, when it came to names, the Barebone family was like no other. Um, in Puritan weird names, their son, Praise God Barebone, is usually pretty well known. But his brother, Fear God, is often forgotten. But it seems like old Mr. and Mrs. Barebone, the older they got, well, the longer their children's names also became. One son was named Jesus Christ came into the world to save Barebone. If you're looking for a name for your next child, that one's available. Perhaps the worst name I could find was their youngest brother. If it had, if Christ had not died for thee, thou hast been damned, Barebone. What? So. So some of the Puritans were very serious about naming their children. No one is more serious about their own name than when it comes to our God. Every man, woman, and child under heaven was given their name. Your name was given to you. Someone named you. But our God was named by no one. No one gave him his name. Rather, he has revealed his name to us. And while we're still just making our way into the Ten Commandments, we're confronted with the importance of the name of our God and how to handle it rightly. 
The book of Exodus is about worship. It's about the work of God in redeeming and saving for himself a people, setting them free that they might worship him. It's often been noted that the first four commandments deal with the first part of the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The first four commandments teach us how to do that. The final six commandments pair really nicely with how the Lord Jesus um, expanded the great commandment to say, and love your neighbor as yourself. I tend to agree. I think it's helpful to see it that way. As a matter of fact, I think the first four commandments are a little instruction manual for Christian worship. Jonathan Edwards explained it like this. The first commandment teaches us the object of worship. The second commandment, the means of worship. The third, the manner of worship. And the fourth, which we'll get to, Lord willing, next week, the time of worship. So in all of this, in these first four commandments, we learn to worship God alone and on his terms, not our own. The third commandment continues to fill out the life of worship that God is calling his people to live. It's not simply with their lips that he's wanting, but also the entirety of their lives as he calls us to hallow his name. And it is God's name that must be treated with the highest regard, with the deepest reverence. We'll organize our thoughts around three specific truths the third commandment teaches us about the name of the Lord. That his name is first, the name above all names. Second, the name not to be taken in vain. And third, the name worthy to be praised. Would you stand with me once more as we read from God's holy and inerrant word? The third commandment, Exodus chapter 20. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The first truth I want to highlight about the name of the Lord is that the name of the Lord is the name above all names. We should point out that as we arrive to this third word, God changes the voice of his language from the second person to the third. The first commandment was, you shall not have any other gods before me. The second, you shall not make any idols. But the third command goes to the third person. God doesn't say, you shall not misuse my name, but you shall not misuse the name of the Lord. Why does he do this? Because he wants to set our attention on the glory of his revealed name, Yahweh. The book of Exodus is brimming full with the revelation of God. The first scene we saw this so clearly was Exodus 3. Moses was standing on Mount Sinai in the burning presence of God who had seen the suffering of his people. God told Moses he was going to deliver them and this would be the sign. When God brought his people out of Egypt, they would stand on this same mountain, Mount Sinai. 
Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, record what happens next. Starting in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So in verse 14, in the first part of this answer, God discloses his name. The actual words that God delivers to Moses in Hebrew are ayah, asher, ayah. The first and the third on the outsides of that are first-person verbs, which mean to be. And in the middle is the word who. And so God's name is more like a sentence that we translate, I am who I am. Or, I will be who I will be. Now, it may seem that God is being mysterious in disclosing his name, but this formula of communication is not meant to bring confusion, but clarity. In fact, the Bible regularly speaks this way to prove an important point. There's nothing more important than the name of our God. One place it does this is Exodus 33:19, where God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So what the repetition does is show this forceful emphasis on what's being said. And so he's making this unforgettable and clear. I am who I am. Then God sends Moses with a short form version of his name. Tell the people of Israel just I am has sent me to you. In the second part of his answer, God explains his name there in verse 15. He makes it clear he's not a God that the people should know about or a new God they must learn of. Rather, the God who has always been and will always be the covenantal God of his people. He reiterates to Moses that he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of the burning bush is not an unknown God. He's the very God of Moses' father. We met him in Exodus chapter 6, verse 20, Amron, and even his ancestors before him. By mentioning the patriarchs, God assures Moses that the promises he made beforehand to bless them, to multiply them, that he would be their God and they would be his people, that those promises are still as sure and certain as God's very word. Here in Exodus 20, in the third commandment, God repeats his name on purpose. And in doing so, instructs them how to bear his name on their lips and in their lives as they gather at Mount Sinai, the very sign that God said he would perform. He's done it. In the New Testament... The name of God is still front and center. However, the name of God is more fully known in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the great I am, dwelling in flesh among us. In order to 
rescue and redeem us and save us from sin and bondage to bring us up to a land where no enemy of God remains and we're nourished by the milk and honey of his presence and his promises. The very name by which God revealed himself in this burning bush is used by the Son of God in his incarnation. Every time Jesus took the sacred name, he was saying, I am God. Many of you are familiar with the, the seven I am statements from the Gospel of John. Let me just rehearse them real quick for us. Even just as an act of worship as we think about Jesus who is I am. John 6.48, he says, I am the bread of life. John 8.12, I am the light of the world. 8.58, before Abraham was, I am. John 10.11, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. John 10.14, I am the good shepherd. 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no way to the Father except through me. Jesus is the I am. And of course, when we move into the writings of the Apostle Paul, there's nowhere this is more clear, where we highlight Jesus being the I am, who is also given the name above every other name, than in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Let me just read the very end of that. Paul writes, therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the name of God that is to be worshipped and believed upon and proclaimed through the ages, which is why we just sang, name above all names, worthy to be praised. My heart will sing how great is our God. Is your heart singing the praise of the name, the name that is above all names? The primary truth we discover, and secondly for our outline, is that the name of the Lord is the name not to be taken in vain. The word for vain is Literally something like frivolous, insincere, or even thoughtless. So the command is saying, don't take God's name in a frivolous, insincere, thoughtless way. Let's explore a range of ways that our tongues might take the name of our God in vain. In three ways. With weighty language, with weightless language, and worship language. The first reach of this command applies to weighty language. I'm trying to use a strong T, so it doesn't come off like weighty. Then I have to explain my Texan to you and all that stuff. So you get it? Weighty language. What does that mean? Well, the verb translated take is actually the phrase to lift up the name of God. It's synonymous with the idea of taking an oath. When a person is sworn in under oath or takes an oath of office, it's often accompanied with the phrase, so help me, what? God. So to lie in court is not only to lie to judge and jury, but to take the name of our God in vain. 
to fail to uphold the vow of office is not just to let down your constituency, it is to break the third commandment. However, the language is not restricted to the courtroom. It spills over into every area of life. Don't take the name in vain. You will hear young boys on a playground and grown men gathered around a television say, I swear to God. And they use that language to try to convince their friends that what they're saying is absolutely true and it should be believed. But this point instructs us not to use the Lord's name to prove our point. But if we do, we better make sure there is no lurking shadow of lying in our words. The Pharisees at the time of Christ warped the third commandment. They would say that you could lie if you swore by the gold of the temple because it wasn't actually the temple. It was just kind of attached to it. But you could not lie on the temple because that would be to break the third commandment. It would be taking God's name in vain. Jesus unravels the need for any of this in the New Testament. He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. I don't know where in the Gospel of Matthew that is. It's somewhere in the Sermon on the Mount. You can find it. So what's the point? Well, you don't need to swear on your great-grandmother's grave. You don't need to swear on your firstborn child's life. And definitely don't swear on the name of the Lord. Just tell the truth. The idea of using God's name rightly in weighty language also applies to categories like false prophecy, where some use God's name as the authority to do whatever they desire. Like, well, the Lord told me to do this. Well, who can argue with the Lord? Or worse, the Lord told me to tell you to do this. That is a, an act of using the Lord's name wrongly. Um, it's also in our, in our time to name things or claim things like health and wealth using God's name like an incantation. Anytime we use God's name in a way to try to manipulate a situation or to accommodate our own desires, we lift it up in vain. And so those are some of the thoughts on how we can break this commandment with weighty words, oaths, taking God's name frivolously, um, actually, which we'll get to in just a moment, or using God's name or his authority in ways that he doesn't command. Another place to apply this is with weightless language. So probably in conversation this week, you heard a coworker or a friend mention the name of God. We hear God's name mentioned all the time by people who do not believe in him at all. They throw his name around like an expletive when they stub their toe in the dark. You're probably not with those people in the dark, but they stub their toe or, um, or they get stuck in traffic. They lift up his holy name when their favorite football team scores a touchdown, or they lift up his name when the opponent also does the same out of anger. People use his name to swear when they hear both a good report and also shattering news. Not long ago, when a person was angry, they may have sworn by saying something like this, by God, that's terrible. That's how people used to talk long ago. <laughs> by God, that's terrible. Well, eventually that was shortened to just by God. In our, our day, just God. 
one application of the third commandment is to never throw around the name of our God like a weightless idea and let it land on whatever circumstance we face. Why? Because the name of our God is glorious. Let me just talk about that word glorious for a moment. It comes from a Greek word doxa. We would translate that word doxa as weight. W-E-I-G-H-T. The weight of God is his glory. His name is glorious. So we don't want to use the glory and weightiness of his name just flippantly. Another way that we can treat God's name as weightless is anytime we say something untrue about him. We edit the Bible like we talked about last week, presenting a God that we is, is actually not what the Bible says. This is to blaspheme and to malign his name and character. What does this mean for us? Well, it means watch your language. Let us not speak of our glorious God with weightless language. And a third way this commandment is to be used is with worship language. The prophets of the Old Testament often call the people of God to a way of living, to a way of worship that was one of integrity, where what comes out of our mouths is the same way that we live our lives. Or to say it differently, when we gather together and praise God and sing his praises and and pray to him, we're the same people all the time. Amos scorns the people for taking up the name of God in worship, in singing, in public praying, where their lives were not consistent with their lips. So let us be warned by that. To be a people of integrity, who walk before God with holiness and humility, adorning his name with praise. And then one way we see the possible breaking of the third command, even in our nation, I thought about this this week, Notice this phrase on the side of cars and on our currency, in God we trust. If we're not a people who walk by trust in God, that is lifting up his name in vain. As we worship the name of God, let it not only be with our lips, but our lives. So what is the penalty for the sin? Not all of them come with a stated penalty. This one's pretty interesting. The penalty for the sin of the tongue is quite scary. It doesn't list the exact punishment. It just says the Lord will not hold him guiltless who commits this sin. Now, the literary term for this way of speaking is meiosis. In rhetoric, meiosis is a figure of speech that intentionally understates something. It, um, it wants to make it seem smaller than it really is. Thomas Watson said of this, less is said, more is intended. So I grew up in a house where my dad spoke English and also Portuguese. And um, when we would go too far, either wrestling with my brother or wrestling with my dad, uh, he would say to me, not in English, but in Portuguese, Chega! Chega meant, if you do that one more time, but you know when a dad never finishes that sentence, how scary it is? That's meiosis. That's what's happening here. God is only saying, the Lord will not hold him guiltless. But what a loving father is saying to his children is, Shega, do not do this. And if you've been doing it, stop. The Lord will not hold them guiltless. 
Of course, the Israelites would. They would take God's name in vain with their lips and their lives. They would not honor the name the way the Lord had commanded. And so they would need his grace to make the relationship right again. As we think about the third commandment, we haven't kept it either. With each of these commands, I said this last week, we don't want them just to stay on the surface of our lives, but penetrate down to the depths of our hearts to sink in. Now perhaps you have not used God's name as a curse word recently, but surely every time we sin, we also break the third commandment. Well, Boz, what do you mean by that? I thought this was just about not cussing and not taking the Lord's name in vain. Well, you see, why this may be, and I think it is, is because we have taken his name. Or to say it differently, we've been given his name. So every child of God, you've been given his name. We are the people of God. We are Christians. We've taken the name of Christ, little bearers of his name. And so everywhere we go, we take his name. With every word, we have the reputation of our God. With every action. And so every time we sin with our tongue, our gossip, we lie, slander, curse, we break the third commandment. And every time we commit a sin of the heart, or even a physical sin, we still break the third commandment. Because we've been given his name. So what we need is some good news. Good news for people who have broken God's law and command. We need forgiveness of sin. And this is exactly what God has given us in Christ. But I want to show you this, not from the New Testament, but from the Old. I want you to turn to the right to the book of Ezekiel. If you're new to the Bible, just keep turning to the right. It's, you'll get there eventually. Go past the Psalms. If you get to Matthew, go backward. Ezekiel 36 is what I'd like you to look for. I want you to hear how God responds to these people who had, the language he uses is profaned his name. They had lifted it up in vain over and over. And also the good news that he gives them. I'm going to be reading in chapter 36, beginning in 22. Guys, the book of Ezekiel is just remarkable. If you're new to the Bible, it's filled with imagery and prophetic language, but it's just stunning. So maybe even later today, you'd read the whole chapter of 36, or if you're courageous, I don't know, the whole book. I'm going to start reading in verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Okay, so let's, he's he's calling them out on their sin. Now look at verse 24. Here's what he will do about it. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle you clean clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is good news for lawbreakers like you and me. This is good news for the people of God who together have broken the third commandment. There's no one in this room that is clear. None of us have perfectly obeyed this commandment. Only Christ. And so I wonder if this morning you have known the forgiveness of breaking his law. This room is full of lawbreakers who aren't seen as lawbreakers anymore because we've trusted in Christ who died in the place of sinners. And the anger and wrath of God against sin has been poured out on Christ instead of us. And so what do you do? How do you go from a person that still stands before a holy God responsible for your own sin to being a person whose sin Christ has paid for? Well, we read it earlier, John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. I'm going to read just a passage where we see this in the New Testament and the Old that talks to the name of God. I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 2, verse 21. If you want to turn there with me, you're welcome to. What Luke does here is quote an Old Testament passage from the book of Joel about what God promises to do through his name. And then what Dr. Luke does is show us another name or a different expression of the name I am. So the, the verse is the same both in Joel and Acts. Acts 2.21 And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this is what Joel writes all the way back in the Old Testament, another one of the prophets looking forward to Christ. And Dr. Luke just baptizes this text in Jesus' name saying, the name is Jesus. And so if you walked in this room today covered in sin and shame, here's the good news. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call upon him today. Repent of your sin. Lay hold of Christ by faith. His name is not to be taken in vain. And then the final truth I'd like to give you is that the name of the Lord is the name worthy to be praised. And here's where I want to point out a very important reality about the Ten Commandments. And I want to do this regularly through the rest of our study. Even though this command is stated in the negative, do not... In the Hebrew, it's the word lo. It's just like so negative. Everything that comes after that, bad news. Don't do it. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. There's also a positive side to this. Don't miss this. There's a positive side to every one of the negative commandments. God's not writing out of anger. He's writing out of love, teaching his children how to live life as his people. So each command has two parts. This is what I want you to see. A negative side and a positive. And what I'd like to do is draw three positive responses to the third commandment for us to work out in our lives this week. The first is that we honor the name. We honor the name by how we treat it and by how we live our lives. 
both with our lips and with our life. I'll move on quickly, but there's a lot there for you to sort out on your own. Second, and I'll spend a little more time here, call upon the name. Call upon the name. Some Orthodox Jews believed that the name was so sacred it should never be said out loud. Um, certain scribes would refuse to write the four letters of God's name in Hebrew. And if they were forced to, they would quit using the quill that they had, get a brand new one, write the four letters, and then throw that one away and carry on with yet another one. A guy after the first service told me, you know who came up with that? A quill salesman. <laughs> I think that's good. They did that out of respect, but... Nowhere in Scripture do we ever find any indication that God's name is too sacred to speak or to write down. Instead, what we find is that God's name is to be published and praised by his people. To call upon the name. And haven't you seen in the first 41 chapters of the book of Psalms that the Bible teaches us to pray this way? How many prayers have we looked through where Yahweh is said in the book of Psalms to call upon the name of the Lord often, to sing to him, to cry out to him, to bless his name. The Psalms teach us to do this, to call on God's name, to learn to pray in a way that centers our thinking on him, that orients our emotional life around him, that orients our whole way of living around the name of our God. And then the third is to proclaim the name. Proclaim the name. To realize when God saved Israel, it wasn't just for them. And when God defeated the Egyptians, it wasn't just so that they would know his name. God did all of this for the sake of his name among the nations. Panta ta ethne. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation would know the name of the Lord God. Would know the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel would be called to proclaim the name to their neighbors. And they would do so imperfectly until the time that Christ came and proclaimed the name and the way of salvation without any blemish. But brothers and sisters, God has placed us right here not to hide the name, not to conceal the name, not to be afraid of the name, but with reverence and awe to proclaim the name to our children, to our neighbors, to our friends and coworkers that there is only one God and his name is Jesus Christ and there's only one way of salvation and that is through him and through him alone. Proclaim the name, the name that is worthy to be praised. As Jesus taught us to pray, he, he began by giving us the phrase, Our Father in heaven, and then hallowed be your name. Before a word of thanksgiving was given, hallowed be your name. Before a sin was to be confessed, hallowed be your name. Before prayer for another person is voiced, hallowed be your name. At the heart of prayer and at the center of the Christian life is a desire to hallow, to honor, to lift up the name of our God rightly. This commandment teaches us that the name of the Lord is the name above all names, the name not to be taken in vain and the name worthy to be praise. The third commandment continues to fill out our lives with what it looks like to worship God. It's not simply with our lips, but with the entirety 
of our lives, that he calls us to hallow the name. Let's pray for his help. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May our lips and our lives tell of the glory and redemption and salvation that you have given us in Christ Jesus, the name above all names. We ask this in his name, for his glory and for our joy. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org. 